If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And after an orgy of recrimination, Madison Cawthorn didn't get the the key bump he needed from former President Donald Trump, and he lost his re-election bid. And now the oft-arrested enfant terrible of the Tar Heel State is just another pretty face who really and truly would hate to shoot the rest of you. If our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's, it's going to lead to one place, and that's bloodshed. And I will tell you, as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. Okay, then, don't. We're at least safe now from this reluctant murderer. He didn't say he'd like to have to shoot us because of all those rigged elections. He said he'd hate it. So what's the problem, guys? He didn't say he did go to an orgy. He said he kept getting invited to Republican orgies and that they were common. If anything, you'd think voters in the 11th would respect the guy for his self-discipline and honesty. Or is that an argument flimsier than a Madison Cawthorn negligee? Republican voter surveys said they found the youngest member of Congress, quote, immature. And guess what? The Republican National Committee agreed. In a safe Republican seat, there was no margin for empowering this handsome disaster to continue to sully the not even close to good name of the Republican Party. Think about that. Soon to be ex-rep Madison Cawthorn, you are too embarrassing for the Republicans. You embarrassed Mark Meadows, a man who is to shame what chimpanzees are to distance swimming. Cawthorn has colleagues in the Cuckoo Bananas Caucus. They are Lauren Bobart, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar. And I know somewhere Jim Jordan is saying, what about me? I'm every much the loon as the rest of them. Sorry, Jim, you're in a different category. Jordan has shown value to Republican leadership and has political skills beyond getting attention and money for himself. These others are headaches in very safe districts who haven't shown much aptitude long-term for their jobs, though they're all better than Cawthorn was. And I got to say, Gosar maybe a dozen years ago was uh, less less double-dipped in the nut mix. But sadly for democracy, none of those other representatives are in as much jeopardy of defeat as Cawthorn was. Though let's also note that Cawthorn was listed as a 70% favorite to reclaim the Republican nomination in the election betting markets that were posted as recently as yesterday. And now I want to make a serious point. But to make a serious point, it's not just a good thing that he lost. It's a good thing that voters got a chance to vote him out. He was subject to the same disqualification efforts led by the group that challenged Marjorie Taylor Greene. Cawthorns got thrown out by the courts, and now Cawthorn got thrown out by the people. That's democracy. Not necessarily Madisonian democracy, but it's done. On the show today, a contrast in words and results from two presidential speeches over the span of 27 years. The responses are similar, too. But first, as we despair over what little can be done about gun control, I have some bad news to layer on top. Depending on an imminent Supreme Court decision, it's going to get even harder to regulate guns. What qualifies as good news may be that some types of gun control do bring down gun deaths. But as my guest, Professor Jonathan Metzl suggests, effective laws that aren't enacted are not just useless, they're crushing. 
Metzl is the author of such books as Dying of Whiteness and the author of such journal articles as Mental Illness, Mass Shootings, and the Politics of American Firearms. He's the director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. And you have access to all these credentials and all of his wisdom up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Recently in my city, there was a mass shooting on the subway where thankfully no one died. And in your city, don't know exactly when you're going to hear this, where you are, I'm going to predict there was a mass shooting too. Now, mass shootings have different definitions, but the most high profile one comes from a group that defines a mass shooting as more than four people shot at any one time. And so far, there have been more than 150 of these in America. Mass shootings, in fact, aren't the major form of gun death. Uh, Suicide plays a gigantic role. And we often tell ourselves that the laws are inadequate to meet this moment. And over the last few years of the pandemic, that argument has gotten more traction. Jonathan Metzl, professor of sociology and psychiatry and the director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt, begs to disagree. He looks at it with more nuance and he points out, and the stats back him up, that good gun laws really do reduce gun crime, even in a situation and environment of increasing gun violence. Dr. Metzl, thank you for joining me again. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. So there are many places we could start, but I'm going to start right here in New York because not only was there this crime, but New York State has a case that has been heard by the Supreme Court. They haven't ruled on it. It's uh, our city's Second Amendment right to carry concealed weapons in public, which is under question. 
So tell me what about New York City's law keeps New York City safe? And in your opinion, if this law is jettisoned, as the opinions of many of the justices seem to indicate it will be, what might be the consequences? Sure. Well, I mean, part of the issue, let's just go back to the terrible shooting that happened in Brooklyn a few weeks ago. Part of the story wasn't that there was a mass shooting, as you suggested in your introduction. Um, there are those kind of horrific shootings really almost daily across the country. Part of the story, and we heard this again in people's responses, in findings of kind of people talking and also on media reports, was this kind of thing doesn't happen in New York. In other words, New York is a place where even though there are ways for people to get guns, there are laws that for better or worse, and it's not like it's all good, keep many people from carrying guns on in public places, like in a crowded subway or in a museum or in Times Square uh, on New Year's Eve. And so the reason that that's the case is because New York and other liberal cities have had gun laws on the books. New York has been on since 1913, uh, but many of these laws are decades, in some cases over a century old, that basically say that there is a constitutional right for people to own a gun. Uh, And if you make a case that you need a gun for hunting or sport shooting or things like that, that you can own a gun. But to carry a gun in public, you have to demonstrate to authorities that you have a a special need. Either you have a, a job like a, you know, law enforcement or private investigator or something like that, or you have a particular threat. You're being stalked by a former partner or your bodega has been robbed in the past. So in a way, there's just a level of, um, there's a level of regulation between owning a gun and carrying a gun in public that has seemed to work pretty well. Now, of course, as we know, it's not in any way perfect. Part of the reason that's the case is because it's just too easy to get guns in a zillion other ways, ghost guns and load up your guns somewhere else. But I would say at an aggregate level, Cities and states that have laws like that, that have some level of oversight about who and how people can carry guns in public, see comparative, not comparative to like Europe, but comparative to other right. states. Or and, Japan. Right. right. Um, but compared to other states that have overturned those kind of laws, see less of pretty much every kind of shooting. So fewer homicides, but also fewer partner shootings. Often in my last book, as we saw, fewer fewer gun suicides. Um, so there's data that suggests that those kind of laws are, are effective in general because there's a level of, I guess we'll call it oversight, that suggests like who really needs to own a gun and who really needs to carry a gun. And there is some data that also suggests that states that have laws like that also have fewer mass shootings. The flip side of that, as I showed in my last book, Dying of Whiteness, is that states that overturn see increases not just of shootings, but of many other crimes linked to guns. So you see more gun trafficking, you see more gun theft from cars. And so the data is pretty, (laughs) is about as slam dunk as it gets in this kind of field that having some levels of oversight. If public safety is your goal, now again, not perfect because we're in the United States and there's many other mitigating factors, but but I would say that in general, that's the case. But it is also true that you made the point that one of the notable things about the New York subway shooting is that it is so rare and it is so rare to have that kind of massive attack. And this guy did have to come out of town, from out of town and out of state to uh, to carry out his 
attack. But uh, in the week around that shooting of 10 people, more than 10 people were shot and as many were murdered in New York. So on the one hand, we shouldn't focus too much on the subway shooting to tell us that New York is an unsafe place in terms of guns. On the other hand, there are things that we can focus on, which could lead us to the conclusion that New York is not a particularly safe place in terms of guns. That, that's exactly right. And that's why you heard, um, you know, quite a few caveats in the answer that I gave you to the first question, um, which is to say that there, there is, there's a but in pretty much every one of the points I made, um, but... We call a mass shooting of four or more people getting shot, but we have often counted only high-profile, often white victim shootings. We haven't counted what are, have been, I think, racially dismissed as what are quote-unquote gang shootings. So, um, and so, uh, or so even I would say non-gang shootings, but just beefs, or if the plural is beefs, beefs like the big shooting, the mass shooting that had, I think, six people killed in Sacramento. When th- when that happened, I think that there was a lot of attention. Oh, maybe this is, you know, a crazy gunman. Who knows why gunman, one person, open fire, like the subway shooting. It turns out that it was a bunch of people, I believe all African-American. I could be g- getting the specific ethnicity of every one of the victims wrong. But uh, it was people arguing with each other in this, uh, in this party district of Sacramento. Guns were drawn and they fired. And my perception was once that was revealed to be the case, it got much less interesting, at least from a national news angle. That's exactly right. And there are there are literally almost daily examples of that dynamic also. I mean, in the weekend after the the subway shooting, there was a shooting in Pittsburgh at a party. There was a shooting in South Carolina at a party. And all of these things, the minute people start calling them gang shootings or urban shootings, they developed a whole kind of lexicon for this. It's almost like they're put into another category, and that category suggests, well, of course, it's just inevitable because of the inherent inherent violence in gangs or in urban or things like that. And so one of the main flaws of what I would call the gun control movement is not seeing all gun homicides as the same, right? In other words, they're all they're all they all threaten human life. And I think that allowing this binary of mass shootings on one side and gang shootings on another side, to, to, to exist really was to the detriment of what you need with gun control, which is a broad coalition of people across different racial and ideological positions, seeing that gun control serves their interests, which we don't have. Yeah. My, my analysis of that would be that uh, it's very tempting to take a horrible uh, mass shooting with you know, a Sandy Hook type shooting or a Las Vegas shooting and not try to get those changes enacted on a political level. But the effect of that is, A, the changes often aren't enacted, and B, it seems to be giving the message that the things that really matter are these somewhat or very exceptional shootings with a lot of uh, fatalities that were often carried off by a lone gunman who was probably having some mental illness issues. Yeah, um, the great uh, um, sociologist and psychologist uh, Jess Swanson at Duke calls calls mass shootings rare acts of violence. They're horrible. They're horrific. In a year, we maybe have four hundred of them, um, but we have over well over now forty thousand gun deaths a year in this country. And so, really, it's everyday gun violence that is 
a much a much bigger issue for the country. And and the the problem we got into, just given the politics of, of guns, is that that what we did is we it was almost like the shoe bomber. Like one guy tried to light his shoes on the plane. And then we created policies where every single person going through security has to take off their shoes. We x-ray their shoes. So we were trying to prevent one thing, which was horrible. Um, but, but so we were looking at this one event and then we tried to prevent, predict and prevent that event. But the policy we put in place, like even assault weapons bans and other things like that were aimed at stopping mass shootings when in, when in actuality, everyday gun violence is much more predictable and much more preventable. When you talk about these circles where we could predict that gun violence is going to happen, of course, the black community bears the brunt and commits uh, the gun violence. I was going to say to a disproportionate amount, but I stopped myself because it's just forget proportion of the population. Most Gun victims, most homicide victims uh, from gun violence in America are black. And this is a country that's 14% African-Americans. Let me push back on that. <laughs> um, that. That's true, except for if you look at the aggregate data on gun death in this country. And it's just really, how do you count gun death, right? Because um, in the most, you know, pretty much every year for the last several decades, you know, we've been inching toward and now have I'm sure vastly superseded 40,000 gun deaths a year. And, and every year about two thirds of that gun death is suicide. Um, and, uh, and of gun suicide, it is overwhelmingly white men. Um, and so if you look at just the aggregate numbers of who is dying by firearm in this country, you actually have to take gun suicide out to think about the question you just asked me. And I just think it's important to note that because the most people who get shot and die are white men by far. It's not even close. It is important. And gun laws actually bring suicide down. And I want to acknowledge all that. But do you know, because I have read some statistics that uh, confirm this, that during the uptick in gun crime in the last couple of years, it's, it's acutely affected the African-American community more so than even before when most of the gun homicide deaths were among and by black people? I, so I'm going to answer that two ways. And I apologize for basically complicating <laughs> every question you asked me, but I just want to acknowledge that these are complicated issues. Um, and so part of the issue is there's a counter argument to be made that actually gun laws disproportionately impact black Americans also. Um, because if you look even at New York data, and this was a argument brought up in front of the Supreme Court, um, black Americans are also disproportionately arrested for gun crimes or incarcerated for gun crimes. And so I think it was quite cynical, but the NRA and its backers used a kind of racial justice argument for the case they made in front of the Supreme Court because gun laws, and we've seen this in New York, I don't know, think of all the cases that we know about, like remember Plexico Burris or those kind of cases um, who brought up gun into a disco and spent years in prison, um, but a zillion cases we don't know about. Um, and so part of the story is about the race of, of gun laws. Um, and so that part of the issue is they just have been disproportionately applied um, in a way that I think is important to think about. Now, I don't think flooding the zone with guns is the right way to do it, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that fact. That being said, I, I would agree with you also that if we're talking about violent uh, violent crime or robberies or homicides. Um, there is an awful lot of shooting that's happening within, um, within, within social networks that are often 
um, you know, to use that stereotype, we're talking about for urban and things like that. And, and so I think part of the issue is, as a society, there's less outcry when that happens until that spills over onto the subway where there's a lot of other Let's kinds of Let's talk for a second about Missouri's Second Amendment protection law. It's not even the lack of a gun law. It's the aggressive and proud uh, rebuttal of anyone who would seek to increase gun safety. Uh, you're from Missouri. What's going on there? Missouri had some pretty reasonable gun laws when, when I was growing up in Kansas City. A lot of people owned guns. A lot of people had a history of gun ownership, hunting, um, guns handed down in their families. And then around 2007, 2008, the NRA and its um, lackey politicians started saying, there's too much regulation here. And so they overturned, and this, like the Supreme Court case, was a starter that opened the floodgates. They overturned the permit process in Missouri. The permit process was like a three-minute you know, almost like, hey, are you a wanted felon on the loose? No, okay, you can have your gun. It was a piece of paperwork <laughs> um, that people had to do. It was okayed by the sheriff's office. Nobody really mattered that much, but the NRA made an argument, oh, no, we don't need this kind of government oversight. Let's just get rid of this bureaucracy. And that opened the floodgates to really a, a complete arms race in, in the state of Missouri. Um, and part of the reason that that was the case is because there was just a rush after that to overturn pretty much every gun law on the books. And the other thing is there was a lot of using racism and racial anxiety the way that's happening now. So the minute people the, pe the minute people started thinking, oh, you could just drive up to dinner with your family and some gangbanger might steal your car or carjack you or something like that. The minute you start kind of telling a lot of people that, people just run out and buy a lot more guns. And so there, there was a, a massive, massive um, arms race really in what happened in Missouri. And, and it really became, in many ways, ground zero. Missouri became number one for all kinds of shootings. In the book, I talk about how it became the number one state for gun suicide, but other, many other kinds of shootings. And it got to the point where Missouri basically, quote unquote, passed a law that said that all gun laws are illegal. We're not going to enforce any federal gun laws whatsoever. And what it did was it led to a bunch of consequences like what we were talking about, but it also led to... It led to a lot of um, gun super owners, white male, often suburban or rural men who owned more than 30 semi-automatic weapons in their homes. But it also really eviscerated, quote unquote, inner cities and places like um, Kansas City, where I'm from, and St. Louis, where um, the mayors of those cities were pleading, like, please give us some way of regulating the flow of guns. Give us some tool to stop ghost guns, give the police some way of at least thinking, you know, who is at risk here. But absent that, it's just, it's led to white flight. It's led to um, real, a real catastrophe in, in already at risk minoritized areas, particularly. Can that uh, Second Amendment protection law in Missouri, can that stand federal challenge? You know, the, the question is going to be, um, I mean, it's certainly... It's certainly unconstitutional. <laughs> like you can't just say we're not going to enact any laws because what's what's to stop? Like think about the flip side. Like New York is trying to enact gun laws and people are saying, no, that's not constitutional. That's what the whole Supreme Court case is. So the, the idea that places can interpret the way they want to is superseded by the fact that we actually have a constitution and a federal government. And so, um, and so it is by the nature of what 
I used to understand America to stand for. It is patently ridiculous and absurd. Um, but, but I would say that in this particular environment and the ways that politics are going, um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what will happen here. Jonathan Metzl is professor of sociology and medicine, health and society, a professor of psychiatry at Vanderbilt. He's the author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Yesterday, Joe Biden flew to Buffalo to speak in person to the community reeling and not yet healing from the shooting that took 10 lives and wounded three. All the dead were African-Americans. This prompted these remarks from President Biden. For the evil did come to Buffalo. It's come to all too many places. Manifest in gunmen who massacred innocent people in the name of hateful and perverse ideology rooted in fear and racism. It is a tough emotional assignment for a leader to reach out to grieving people and try to soothe them. But it's not an unfamiliar one. Ronald Reagan after the space shuttle exploded, Barack Obama after Mother Emanuel Baptist Church, George Bush after 9-11, and in the instance I'm going to focus on, Bill Clinton after the Oklahoma City bombing. Both Biden and Clinton empathized with victims. Biden did so through personal experience that we all know about. It's not the same, but we know a little bit what it's like to lose a piece of your soul. When you lose a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father. The feeling of having that, as I said to some of you when we talked privately, you feel like there's a black hole in your chest you're being sucked into and you're suffocating, unable to, unable to breathe. Clinton was a younger man and he'd experienced much less loss. He did not attempt to access personal experience as he spoke in Oklahoma City four days after the 1995 bombing. Instead, Clinton quoted from a letter he received from a widow of a passenger on Pan Am Flight 103, which a terrorist bomb took down over Lockerbie, Scotland. Here was Clinton reading those words. Here is what that woman said I should say to you today. The anger you feel is valid, but you must not allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The hurt you feel must not be allowed to turn into hate, but instead into the search for justice. The loss you feel must not paralyze your own lives. Instead, you must try to pay tribute to your loved ones by continuing to do all the things they left undone, thus ensuring they did not die in vain. Wise words from one who also knows. Clinton is, of course, a great orator. I would say Biden connects more in this one specific aspect of shared grief. Speeches like these follow a template of acknowledging the loss, of mourning the dead, of disavowing the ideas of the evildoers, engaging in repudiation. One thing we owe those who have sacrificed is the duty to purge ourselves of the dark forces which gave rise to this evil. 
This venom, this violence cannot be the story of our time. We cannot allow that to happen. And then there is the call to our creed, presenting our shared ideas not only as superior in construction, but more powerful in action. And then there's a portion that each man did, though at different times. Yesterday, Biden said this of people who spread hateful ideology. Failure to say that is going to be complicity. Silence is complicity. It's complicity. We cannot remain silent. And in 1995, Clinton said this. When they talk of hatred, we must stand against them. When they talk of violence, we must stand against them. When they say things that are irresponsible, that may have egregious consequences, we must call them on it. The exercise of their freedom of speech makes our silence all the more unforgivable. Now, that was actually given a day after the speech in Oklahoma City. Clinton waited one day and then used his elected pulpit to excoriate a prominent electronic one. Rush Limbaugh took the critiques personally, as they were probably meant to be. He was the embodiment of a talk radio ethos that was seen to have spurred on the bombing, the anti-government white supremacy that drove the bomber Timothy McVeigh. Biden, in Buffalo yesterday, laid responsibility on a broad swath of people, internet profiteers, the past president, and in a couple of cases, the broadcasters for whom trading in incendiary notions are just a business model. That's my wish for us. We can do this if we resolve to do it. If we take on the haters and those who don't even care, it's just about profit and politics. The profiteers took exception. In 1995, Rush Limbaugh, assuming the president was speaking about him, stated, talk is not a crime and talk is not the culprit here. Talk didn't buy fertilizer and fuel oil. Talk didn't drive the van. Talk didn't rent the van. A person did. A lunatic did. And he also said, make no mistake about it. Liberals intend to use this tragedy for their own political gain. Last night on Fox, Tucker Carlson said, Biden went to Buffalo today because he thought he could blame his political opponents for what happened there, which of course he promptly did. Just as there is a presidential playbook for speaking after a mass attack by extremists, so too there is a propagandist's playbook. No words, according to them, have ever led to actions. All their words have been misinterpreted. All the lunatics inspired by them were, it must be emphasized, lunatics. And inspired? No, no, no. By them? Oh, no, definitely not. I'm actually more open than many others are to the argument that Carson, like Limbaugh before him, isn't strictly responsible for the bad acts of his followers. Some of his defenses aren't just defensive, but defensible. Of course, in general, I don't think their sentiments are useful or careful or accurate. I'm persuaded that they didn't think that these horrible acts would happen, but if they did think they'd happen, they'd find a way to convince themselves otherwise. Mostly, they don't care. Notable for as much as all the arguments and results have stayed the same, there's one subtle difference which you heard. Clinton called out promoters of paranoia for spreading hate. Biden repeatedly emphasized profit, and I think that's right. Here's what hasn't changed, the anger, the violence, the shock, the irresponsibility. But in modern times, there's more cynicism around all these actions and arguments. Timothy McVeigh 
was a true believer. This current idiotic 18-year-old was certainly a hate-filled racist, but he cut and pasted his so-called beliefs from another screed so they were outdated and irrelevant by the time anyone who wanted to find them could. And he did this, this hasty, not very well thought out, cut and paste job in the same way that modern purveyors of replacement theory do every day. And that's it for today's show. Corey Ward, the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Umperu, jiperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.